Well, good morning, friends. Good morning, family. Um, first of all, did somebody say what's up? I think somebody said what's up. I love that, man. A bunch of millennials. What's up? What's good, bro? Um, good morning. Uh, first of all, let me say thank you for allowing me the chance last week to step away and teach at one of our partner churches here in the city. It's called Grace Community Church. Um, whoop, whoop. There's a handful of churches in Greensboro that have um, just been incredible partners with us in our journey. In case you did not know, it's your first time. We are a two-year-old church plant, um, baby little church, and there are a ton of churches that have come alongside of us in support and encouragement, and Grace is one of those. I had a chance to participate in their all-in weekend last weekend, Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday night, and Sunday morning. I saw cheese, cheese puffs thrown at people's faces with uh, shaving cream on. I saw bologna that was thrown at a window that people then consumed in their mouth. Um, and I also saw a game. You know the game where you have a brown bag and somebody's eyes are closed and they're sticking their hand in and they got to eat whatever's in the bag and figure out what it is? Uh, I saw apple, onion, peach, and a baby mouse. No joke. I was like, what is this, man? This is like 90s youth group craziness, you know? But uh, it was a blast. I had a really great time um, hanging out with them and just incredible affirmation. There's people praying for us that love us, that love our community, and that are partnering with us in the pursuit of renewal in this city, renewal and reconciliation in this city together as we pray as a larger church body. Your kingdom come, your will be done in Greensboro as it is in heaven. So I appreciate that. And I heard, first of all, the, the young lady who spoke last week was fine. That was fine. I mean, man. And I heard she brought the house down last week. Uh, you, know what's, you know what's good when your dad texts you and says, hey, I watched, or not watched, I listened to the podcast, and uh, you're going to have a hard time following up that. And I was like, dad, what in the world, man? Where's the love? He's like, your wife killed it last week. So uh, she do a good job, you think? Yeah, pretty good? Awesome. So, <laughs> some of you are still trying to decide. Okay. <laughs> Um, we've been journeying through this series called In My Feelings uh, and diving into a book by a guy named Peter Scazzaro called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, where the premise of the book is that um, you can't be spiritually mature and remain emotionally immature. A lot of us might be at age 25, 35, or 45 spiritually, but emotionally we're about like a seven-year-old. And the idea here is that we can't be at the same level um, emotionally and spiritually if they're opposite or they're different. So the hope is that through this series, we are transformed. We are continually being transformed into Christ-likeness. Um, last week, Jordan talked a little bit about um, the dark night of the soul. It comes from um, mid-16th century author, writer, um, contemplative um, guy named St. John of the Cross and wrote this book called Dark Night of the Soul. And it's the idea that all of us at some point in our faith journey will come to a spiritual wall. And a lot of us just stay there. We stay complacent. We stay in that same spot um, for the remainder of our journey. And yet the push here, the drive, is to go through the wall, to go deeper inward. 
And uh, it may seem like the Lord's presence isn't um, around. You can't feel the Lord's presence tangibly. That there's a passive kind of transformation taking place in our soul that we may not actively be involved in. We're like, Lord, where are you at? What's going on? This is so different than I've ever experienced before. But the Lord is passively working. It just seems as though he isn't. And that's because oftentimes I think the Lord numbs our feelings so we don't worship them. So we worship him and him alone. And so Jordan dove into that last week. And this week is a bit more introspective. It's even deeper into the soul. It's even deeper into our heart, into our humanity. As we look at the idea of being transformed through grief, loss, and suffering. So go ahead and jump into the scriptures with me, Matthew 26 is where we're going to be at this morning, Matthew chapter 26. If it's your first time, welcome. We're glad you're here. So glad you chose to be a part of our gathering. Um, We'd love for you to fill out a connect card. We'd love to get to know you, hear your story, and um, hang out. So Matthew 26 is where we're going to be at this morning. And we're going to start reading in verse 36. Verse 36. At this point in the biography that Matthew writes about Jesus, we are almost to his crucifixion ultimately his resurrection, and then the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28. So it reads, Matthew 26, verse 36. It says, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. That cup is a metaphor often used throughout the scriptures as a cup of suffering. Um, Both suffering and blessing. Here particularly, uh, Jesus is referencing the cup of suffering. So that's a metaphor that he is using there. Take this cup, be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Way to go, disciples. Can't even stay awake. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Peter struggles, man. You want to see the total like human experience in a person? Just, just do a character study on Peter. Dude's got some struggles, all right? <laughs> watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come. And the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Lord Jesus, um, I'm so thankful for this morning. For some of us, this morning may be hard. It may be challenging as we dive into this idea of grief and loss and challenge and suffering and struggle. Um, but God, I pray that in this space, as we gather together as a larger body, 
um, whether you've been here many times or it's your first time, um, God, I just ask that you would touch the hearts of those in this space. And right now, as I'm praying over our community, would you open hearts and open eyes and open minds to what is real? Open our minds to reality this morning. I thank you for the chance that we have to gather in this space each and every week. But more importantly, I'm thankful that we are sent out of here every day and every week as many temples across the city that display your glory as presence carriers in this city as we seek to make disciples of Jesus for the renewal and the reconciliation of this city. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen, amen. There is a double-threaded commonality within the human experience. Double-threaded commonality. Two threads that go throughout our entire human experience, all of us. The first thread is the threat of death. All of us in this room will die at some point. All of us at some point will breathe our last physical breath. Um, That's a commonality amongst all of us. Um, For some of us, death seems very close because maybe sickness or a family member or tragic accidents, whatever it may be. For some of us, we think death is far off, but the reality is is that eternity... Uh, is actually right beside us. Um, we're not guaranteed anything at all, ever. And um, that's a common thread. All of us in here at some point will die. Great start. Welcome to church, okay? <laughs> the second thread and commonality amongst us in our human experience is the thread of pain and suffering. The thread of pain and suffering. Humans all across the world, no matter the background, um, socioeconomic status, ethnicity, political views, gender, race. At some point, every human being across the face of the earth will experience pain and suffering. It is a common thread amongst our human experience, along with that of death. Blood is what biologically ties us together. Um, The brain, the human brain, is what neurologically binds us together. And pain and suffering is what experientially binds us together. Pain and suffering is something that we all experience. It is a tie that we all have with one another. Pain is inevitable because it's part of the human experience. If I asked the question today, have you experienced pain and suffering in your life? All hands would go up. And if a hand did not go up... It will at some point because pain is promised. Pain is promised. And matter of fact, I think a lot of us, because of an an anemic theology of suffering in the church, think for some reason that when Christ enters into our life, suffering just goes away. Actually, when Christ comes into our life, oftentimes suffering increases. Challenge increases. Pain increases. It's a promise. Pain is a promise. It's all throughout the New Testament. Do a character study on all of the disciples and see their life. See how they died. Pain and suffering is part of it. Now, I will say that Jesus came to give life and life abundantly. He gives life 
that there is pain and suffering for all of us, and it is a promise. And as followers of the way of Jesus, it is a part of the natural heartbeat and rhythm of being a disciple of the way of Jesus. It is a part of following Jesus. Pain is inevitable. Pain is promised. And we have um, discussed the power of emotions and the need for self-awareness. We talked about that the very first week. Um, The second week, we talked about family of origin and patterns that have been passed down to us um, without our permission, right? There are patterns and habits in our families that may or may not look like the patterns of Jesus. And so we talked about family of origin and generational sin. It sounds like a lot of fun, right? Um, you can go back and listen to the podcast. It was a powerful morning. This whole like altar here on our gym hardwood floor was um, filled with stories and people experiencing, I think, freedom and the presence of the Lord through um, challenging family of origin circumstances. And then last week, Jordan talked about the dark night of the soul and journeying through the wall. And then today, we get a chance to, to go even further inward into pain and suffering. Pain and suffering. Um, emotionally healthy spirituality, this idea from Pete Scazzaro, is uh, seeking transformation with a ruthless dedication to reality. A ruthless dedication to what is real. He says that mental health is a dedication to reality. It's a dedication to reality. And pain and suffering is reality. Pain and suffering is reality and a reality. And for us to experience total and continual transformation, we must go through. Note the word through. We must go through pain and suffering. Not around pain and suffering, not above it, not under it. We have to and must go through it. I'm reminded of Psalm 23. When it talks about walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Where are you walking? You're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. We must go through pain and suffering. Dr. Dan Allender, who is a a Christian psychologist and author and writer, incredible Um, uh, just brilliant man, says the work of restoration cannot begin until a problem is fully faced. The work of restoration in your life cannot begin unless a problem is fully faced. We must not only face the problem or face suffering, but we must go through pain, through the agony and suffering because it is in the midst of the pain and suffering that we are transformed and grow the most. Very rarely do we grow from successes. Very rarely do we grow through um, dandelions and all things beautiful. We grow through problems. We grow through change. Even look at the, uh, the, the makeup of the human body. When a person lifts weights and they start tearing muscle They're breaking down the muscle ultimately to build it back up even stronger. We grow through pain, suffering, and challenges. That is how we are most formed. However, we have become masters and have created creative ways to deflect the reality of pain and suffering. We have created what Schizero calls defense mechanisms, where we deflect what is real. A couple of those mechanisms for pain, he mentions, are denial. (laughs) 
How many of you know people who are in just, they're in denial? Total self-denial. Some of you raise your hand, you're like, that's me, you know? <laughs> that's me, total denial of what's real. A lot of us maybe looking even back to high school, right? You had a friend that was dating some guy who was a total jerk, treated her like trash, and she's like, but I love him. He's amazing, I love him. You're in denial, sweetheart, in denial, all right? Denial. It's funny how the high school experience actually is a glimpse into what is totally real our entire life. It just is in different levels. It's, it's wild. The second thing is minimizing. Some of us just minimize pain. We minimize what is real. The next is we blame others. We point fingers. What's their fault? It's their fault. It's their fault. It's my parents' fault. It's my teacher's fault. It's my boyfriend's fault. It's my girlfriend's fault. It's my wife's fault. It's my husband's fault. We blame others. The next one is we blame ourselves. A lot of us self-deprecate. It's my fault. I'm a terrible person. Oh, I'm horrible. Oh, the shame in our culture is unbelievable. We're the most narcissistic culture to ever live in the most lonely, shameful, guilty culture that's ever lived. Shame. We, we start to blame ourselves. It's my fault. Or we start rationalizing. Well, this is how it could happen. I can see why. Da, 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 da. Start rationalizing. The next one is we intellectualize. Intellectualizing. We start to use our mind to try to wrap ourselves around logical like conclusions and reasoning around the pain and suffering and why it exists. Distracting. We just distract ourselves with a busy schedule. I think a lot of us honestly are so busy because we're trying to distract ourselves from what is actually real and below the surface. The pain and suffering that is real. The next one is becoming hostile. Some of us has, have quick triggers or ain't we get angry. And also, I want to add in, some of us um, are notorious to over-spiritualize our pain. And we'll use the word prayer in context that it may or may not meant to be, it was not meant to be used in. You can't use prayer as a means to be in denial. Okay? Hear me out. I love prayer. Prayer is a communing with the Father, but you can't use it as a way to deny reality. Right? If anything, you use it as a way to go through it. Okay? So some of these defense mechanisms are mechanisms that we see in our everyday life. And these are strategies used to attempt to create a false reality. We want to create a false reality. Did you know that Jesus isn't concerned with transforming your false reality? He doesn't want to transform your false reality. He wants to transform what is real. He wants to transform your reality. And we create these defense mechanisms to uh, falsify reality or create a false reality. One of the reasons we attempt to create false realities or seek to deflect reality is not only because of fear. I think a lot of it has to do with fear or another word that we use often is anxiety. It's not just because of fear, but I think it's also out of, a, out of a sense of pride and lack of humility. I think a lot of us create defense mechanisms out of pride and lack of humility because we think we can handle more than we actually can. We think we can handle more than we can. You know, the origin of the word humility comes from the idea of being from the earth, being of the earth. Fascinating because it's also where we get the word humanity. The origin of the word humility and humanity are from the same origin, of the earth. Of the dirt is the, the true literal translation. You and I are of the dirt. 
If that's not humbling, I don't know what is. Our pain and suffering shows us that we aren't creator God. We have limits. You can be the most wealthiest person on the face of the planet with the most power, but because you are human, because you're of the earth, you have limits. Number one, you will die. You will experience pain and suffering. That points to limits. It also points that you and I need. You and I need. Do you get that? We don't just want, but all of us actually need. Creator God doesn't need. The Holy Spirit doesn't need. Jesus, the Christ, doesn't need. You and I need. We need. It points to our humanity. It points to our humility. Humility, friends and family, is the most true posture of a human. To be humble really is the most true posture that we can have as a human that points to our original purpose and and, and kind of created order in the creation account in Genesis chapter 1. That's the greatest posture that we can be in as a human is a posture of humility. Pain, suffering, trials, challenge, hardships, and healing are the playground for spiritual growth and process. Did you catch that? Pain, suffering, challenge, struggle, healing are the playground for spiritual growth and process. Did you know that the word healing means a process by definition? The word healing, if you look it up, just Google definition of healing on Google. Google gives us all the answers, right? Google the definition of healing, and by definition, it means a process. It means a process. Healing isn't a place we arrive at. It's a process we go through. It's not a place that we arrive at. It is a process that we go through. And pain and suffering are an integral part of the total healing process. Integral part in the total healing process. No surgery for healing ever excludes going through the pain. I can't help but think about my wife who over the last four years has gone through three different hip surgeries. Three different surgeries with six months of recovery and has yet to experience total healing. To hear her have to share with me that I just don't know if I'm ever going to be healed. I don't know, Lord, what's going on. I, I, like, I trust the Lord. He's good. He can heal, but he must be teaching me something through this because I'm not being healed. To see her go to physical therapy twice a week. To see tears come down her eyes about the pain and suffering that she is physically in and seemingly can't escape. I think that's just a physical representation for a lot of us, but it's actually our soul. It's actually our heart. But a lot of us are in pain, but we haven't ever gone to surgery before. I referenced that a couple of weeks ago. Surgery is a powerful metaphor for the human soul. All of us need surgery. And did you know that in surgery, it requires 
Not only a doctor who is trained, but it requires a team of people in the room. And then you also have to have a team outside of the room in the recovery process. A lot of us need surgery, and healing is a process. A lot of us want healing yesterday or tomorrow. Healing is something that we go through. It is a process. And pain and suffering are a part of the total healing process. And guess what? I think that pain and suffering and and lamenting, as we see in the book of Lamentations in the Old Testament, is actually a spiritual practice. That mourning and lamenting are a part of our spiritual disciplines and practice to the Lord because it returns us to our humanity. It returns us to a posture of humility and a posture of being in total need of God. Total need. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, experiences the greatest agony of his time on earth. This isn't physical agony, but this is deep-rooted soul agony and sorrow. I'm going to go back and read verse 36. It says, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. Verse 37, he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, if it is is possible at all, if you can make this happen, take this cup of suffering from me yet not as I will but as you will like take it if you can but if you can't you do what you got to do we see the fullness of Jesus humanity in the garden of Gethsemane we see the fullness of of the human experience when when it comes to pain and suffering in the garden of Gethsemane you know Gethsemane was an olive garden um, at the bottom of the Mount of Olives it was an olive garden. And the name Gethsemane literally means an oil press or an olive oil press. So Jesus' soul is literally being crushed in a place that's called an olive press. His soul is being crushed in a garden, a place the Lord's heart was originally crushed by humanity. You know, oil is often throughout the scriptures a symbol for anointing or sacredness or being set apart for anointing. But there is no anointing where there isn't first a crushing. In this garden, olive oil was crushed and created, or olives were crushed to create oil. A symbol of anointing. And I'm learning more and more that there there can't be anointing without a crushing first. So Jesus is in this garden of Gethsemane, this place called an oil press. And his soul is being literally crushed. There are a couple practical takeaways I see in Jesus' actions in the garden But first of all, um, notice he brings three of his tightest companions, Peter, James, and John. James and John, sons of Zebedee, brings Peter, James, and John into his process of suffering. He intentionally does that. 
He said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. He tells his other disciples and apostles, stay over there. But Peter, James, and John, I need you to come with me. He brings his tightest companions with him into his suffering. Why is that important? It's important because you can't go through pain and suffering alone. You can't. If the Son of God can't, you can't. Not only does he have specific people, but he has a specific place. He has a specific place. You and I need specific people and places to go through the pain in our life. A lot of us, I think, have just whimsically chosen random friends or relationships. And they're probably not the best people to walk with you through the pain. Or we haven't intentionally chosen a place, and so what ends up happening, because we don't go through it in a healthy manner, that place ends up being our work, it ends up being uh, in everyday life, at school, it ends up being in our families, at inopportune times, at the dinner table, because we don't have an intentional place to go and process with specific people, to walk through the pain. Jesus has specific people, and he goes to a specific place, to Gethsemane. Notice he's not in the upper room. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. A lot of us need a place or a space to go through the pain. Specific people in our life. So that's just the first thing I noticed kind of off the bat. But now into the two practical takeaways from Jesus' actions. The first thing is that Jesus shares his pain. That's the first thing I noticed. Jesus shares his pain. Five key words here. Then he said to them, Then he said, that means to talk, to speak, to let it out. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. The word soul means psyche. His psyche is all out of whack. His psyche is all messed up. His psyche is all disjointed. And the soul is what makes us human. So his entire self is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Notice Jesus doesn't deflect. He doesn't throw up a defense mechanism. He doesn't hold it in. He isn't in denial. He isn't blaming or rationalizing. He is in his humanity and in humility sharing verbally his pain. Then he said to them, there is pain in our life that no one knows about, that we have never once verbalized. We've only gone as far as to journal about it. And you think you're totally free. No, no, no. You need to speak it out of your mouth. Maybe it's in, 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 a, in a special environment like with a counselor, a trained professional. Maybe it's a spiritual director or a, a mature seasoned saint where you can speak it out. He verbalizes it, and you can see his emotions and his feelings welling up inside. The message translation says he plunged into agonizing sorrow. He is so overwhelmed with sorrow and grief that he feels like he is dying. Jesus is having what we call in our modern culture an anxiety attack or a panic attack. 
He is literally experiencing a panic attack right here in this passage of Scripture. He feels like he is dying. Some of us have been through anxiety attacks before or a panic attack before, and you feel like literally you're dying. You can't breathe. You're sweating profusely. You're crying. You just feel like the weight of the world is falling on you, and you're, at, you're just this close to death. Jesus is experiencing it right here. But he verbalizes it. He shares it. I think this is important truth for all of us to realize this morning, especially those of us who have experienced pain, which, by the way, all of us. Something happens, something beautiful happens, something freeing happens when you share externally the, the suffering and pain that is happening internally. Something beautiful happens when you share externally the suffering that is happening internally. Now listen, don't, don't get confused and think, well, I'm just going to share with anyone and everyone. Some of us don't protect our stories well. And you're sharing with the wrong people. You need to specifically pray about the specific people in your life who you can share the pain, suffering, and agony. Because I think some of us, sharing it just profusely is also a way of being in denial. Because we're sharing it thinking, oh, I'm getting somewhere with it, when in reality, we're not. We need to have specific people who we're sharing with intentionally. But something happens when we share externally the suffering that is happening internally. And listen, men, Jesus is the creator of the world. Let's talk about masculinity for a second. One of the most masculine things that you can do is share how you truly feel. Get it off your chest. Because here's what happens. It ends up creating almost like a trash can in your soul of sorts where you just dump it back in that same trash can over and over again. Before you know it, you start to stink. And your wife experiences it. Your kids experience it. Your friends experience it. Your coworkers. And like, bro, what is up with you, man? Or you're just cold. And there's nothing masculine about that at all. Nothing at all masculine about you keeping your feelings on the inside. And some of you are like, that's not my personality. It's not, not a matter of personality in the passage. Jesus is the fullness, I think, of the total human personality. He verbalizes it. He shares about his pain. Jesus has known all the while, since he was a very little kid, that he is having to go to the cross. He's having to go to the cross, but now in his humanity, he is having to go through it. How many of you know there are times in your life, there are situations that you know lie ahead, and it creates such fear and anxiety in you that leading up to it is far worse than going through it? That the moments, just the few moments that lead up to it, maybe you're walking into a hospital, and you have a parent who's in the hospital room, and they're checking to see if they have cancer. And you walk in the room and there's this overwhelming sense of anxiety and fear leading up to that moment. Jesus, in this moment, I think, is experiencing the fullness of what it looks like for him to die to himself. Not a physical death yet, but his soul is being crushed in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
Many believe that in the Garden of Gethsemane is where Jesus truly died. Jesus' humanity was destroyed in the Garden of Gethsemane. There was a crushing spirit, not of his body. He conquered physical death on the cross, but spiritual death in a garden. Leonard Ravenhill said, Gethsemane is where he died. The cross is only evidence. Gethsemane is where he died. The cross is only evidence. And he is verbalizing this pain. One of the most humble, spiritually mature behaviors that you can practice is to verbalize the pain, not deflect it, not be in denial. A study was done at UCLA a few years ago on the power of putting words to our feelings, to our emotions. Matthew Lieberman, who conducted the study, said this. He says, when you put feelings into words, you're activating the prefrontal region of your brain and seeing a reduced response in the amygdala, which is where emotions or feelings are processed. He said, in the same way you hit the brake when you are driving, when you see a yellow light, when you put feelings into words, you seem to be hitting the brakes on your emotional responses as well. One of the ways that we process through emotions and the most healthy way for us for our brain is to verbalize it. When you verbalize it, it actually helps to reduce responses in the amygdala, in our brain. It's a total human experience. Verbalizing your pain and your sorrow and your suffering actually makes a difference. Not only is this how Jesus feels, but he is actually sharing how he feels verbally. The second thing is this, is that Jesus shows his pain. Jesus shows his pain. It says that he fell to the ground. In Luke 22, the same story, it says he he sweat drops of blood. He got to a point of such stress that his body actually produced blood. He sweat blood droplets. He, He physically shows it. He falls to the ground. Not only does he verbalize his pain, but he shows it physically. Some of us need to cry. Some of us need to have someone hug us for quite a while. Some of us need to verbalize it to the point where we drop to the floor. Because while we're up and walking physically, our soul is limping and it needs to fall. Jesus shows his pain. A physical response to suffering also points to our humanity and our limits. When you physically respond to pain and suffering of this magnitude, it points to our limits. Last year, I had um, my very first anxiety attack ever. Only had one, and it was last year. And it was debilitating. It was late night, it was like 11 o'clock in our home, and Jordan and I were having a conversation, and it was just a... Just a heavy moment, and I broke. In my humanity, I broke. And I hit the floor. I just started bawling my eyes out profusely. I mean, I was honestly just being totally transparent. Can I do that? Is that cool? Um, totally transparent. Like, I was hitting the ground, and there were, there, words were coming out of my mouth I never say. It, it, was, it was that heavy for me. I felt like I couldn't breathe well. Um, there was like a weight that was on my chest, in my mind, my heart. And I experienced agony and pain and suffering. And I was like, 
what in the world? Like, what is this? And Jordan's crying profusely, and Coda's freaking out. Our dog doesn't know what to do with anxiety attacks. He's about to have one himself in the corner over there, you know? And I had never come so close to my humanity ever before. Um, when I saw that Jared Wilson committed suicide a couple weeks ago, there was a weight that fell on my shoulders, my chest. A lot of us have had experiences like that before, and we have deflected it, and we've put it in the trash can in our soul. We haven't shared with anyone, or we're getting to a point where it's going to happen at some point because we're not, we're not conversing with anyone. We're not verbalizing pain and suffering, and we need to. If not, your body will force you to the ground. It's amazing what our bodies can tell us about our soul and our mind and our heart. Sometimes your body starts saying things to you. You're like, man, that stress, anxiety, fear, what is that? I experienced that for myself, and some of us, I feel like, have experienced that before. In the depths of our pain is when we recognize our deepest need for hope. A hope that can't be taken from us. You can't put your hope in things that can be taken from you, a.k.a. your spouse, your best friend, your mother, father, job, your money. Oh, Lord knows that gets taken away. Can't put hope in things that can be taken from you. You can only put hope into something that is eternal. And I have a person to introduce you to. He's Christ the King. His name is Jesus. Because he resurrected from the tomb. You know what resurrection means? It means life after life after death. He didn't just come back to life. He never died. Jesus resurrected. M. Scott Peck says this. He says, to proceed very far through the desert, you must be willing to meet existential suffering and work it through. In order to do this, the attitude towards pain has to change. This happens when we accept the fact that everything that happens to us has been designed for our spiritual growth. The question isn't, how can I escape the pain? The question is, what can I get from the pain? What can I learn from the pain? How can I grow from the pain? What we don't recognize in this passage is that Jesus prays three times to the Father that the cup of suffering be taken from him, and the Father never responds once. Or does he? See, something happens in this passage of Scripture. Jesus prays over and over and over again to the Father. The Father never responds verbally. But if you notice, the, the, the Jesus that enters into the garden is a little different than the Jesus who starts to leave the garden. Jesus comes in a man full of sorrow to the point of death, or he falls to the ground sweating blood to walking out to his disciples ready for the cross. You know why? He didn't hear the words of the Lord, but he experienced the presence of the Father. And some of us need a healing that can only come in the presence of the Most High God. It's not words that we need. It's actual presence. The Holy Spirit. Verse 45, 46 says, Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Which a lot of us are asleep 
to not only our pain, but the pain of those around us as well. Just a quick little side note. That's not even in my notes. That's like side caveat. Some of, you, some of you in this room, including myself, are asleep to the pain of our friends and those we're closest to. Look, the hour has come. The Son of Man is delivered in the hands of sinners. I love this next word, rise. It's like watching a darn DC comic movie or a Marvel movie. Rise. Let us go. In other words, here comes my betrayer. Let's do this. Are you kidding me? Why? Because Jesus experiences healing in the presence of the Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane. He goes through his soul being crushed, but through the process and through the presence, he walks out in bold confidence, ready for the cross. Because he's just conquered the world. He's just conquered the soul of humanity in the garden. Now he's just got to go through the physical death on the cross, which is evidence of what is happening right in the Garden of Gethsemane. He walks out with bold confidence. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Jesus experienced healing in the presence. Not the present, the presence. As Leonard Sweet says, the tragedy of the world began in the garden. Jesus was betrayed by a kiss in a garden, sending him to his death. But the good news is that he was also resurrected in a garden, undoing both wrongs. Jesus has an affinity for gardens. We must, friends and family, if we want to be transformed, we need to go through pain and suffering. A resurrected life only comes out of a crucified one. You don't ever experience the resurrection that Christ has for us without going through crucifixion of the flesh first. Final quote for us as I'm going to get um, Mickey and I'm going to get Corey. Come on up, Corey. Can. We're going to get ready to partake communion together as a, as a family. Final quote. I love this so much from Henry Nowen. He has a book called Can You Drink the Cup? I encourage you to, to pick the book up. It's fascinating. He says, when we are crushed like grapes, we cannot think of the wine we will become. When we are crushed like grapes, we cannot think of the wine we will become. Some of us have been crushed, but don't recognize the wine that we are becoming. We need to embrace the crushing so that we can embrace the resurrection. That's the upside down way of the kingdom, that through death there is life. That through suffering there is purpose and there is meaning. You need to process through the pain, the suffering, the challenge, the, the struggle. Maybe it's childhood experiences. Maybe it's sexual abuse you've experienced before. Maybe your dad's treated you like trash your whole life. Maybe your mom's never showed you any physical affection before. Never, never gave you a hug. Never said I love you. Maybe you've been picked on a ton, honestly. It's just it's been eaten at you over and over and over again. Even your friends, your closest friends, they just go out, they just pick at you. This morning, we are going to partake in communion together, as we do on the first Sunday of the month. And in 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 the Lord's Supper, in communion, we see brokenness of Christ's body and the spilling of his blood it was for us. But it's also a reminder that in our brokenness is where we experience life. 
when we partake of the bread, we partake of the cup, represents the nourishment of Christ in us. And better yet, it represents his presence.